0: God accomplishes his purposes through covenants. All through the Bible, God administers his sovereign rule through covenants. And what's a covenant? A sworn oath. It might be an an oath between two people, like we would see in a marriage where one party, one person, the, the groom swears an oath to the bride and the bride swears an oath to the groom. But it can also be unilateral, where one person just swears an oath to another on pain of personal penalty if they don't keep it. And so God administers his sovereign rule through covenants. And actually, a clear understanding of the covenants is a way to understand what salvation is. And it's actually the key to understanding the Bible. And so, as we work our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, we're going to see that the problem with the Judaizers, the legalists who taught you have to be circumcised and keep food laws and observe Jewish regulations in order to be right before God, they misunderstood covenants. And so we're going to read this morning Galatians 3 verses 7 to 9, which begins Paul's biblical argument against the Judaizers. So we could, last couple of weeks, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. That was Paul's experiential argument against the legalists. He was saying, you know by experience, you began by faith, what do you think? You're going to continue by your own works? No, experience is a good teacher in that regard. But now Paul begins his biblical argument. In verse 7, Galatians 3, verse 7. And he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And now the conclusion, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, the perfect word of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless your word this morning to our souls by your spirit, that we would see the treasures that you have written here and that we would lay hold of them by faith and be edified and strengthened and our knowledge of Christ unto your glory. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. Well, to understand Paul's words here, we are going to need to go back to the Old Testament, to the Abrahamic covenant. And so uh, first we need to understand that the Abrahamic covenant gave Christ. So what's the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant? There's many people confused about this. Some think he was establishing a special race that he would bless from that point forward. Some people think that God was establishing, you know, a a promise to parents and their children. And he's going to continue that for all, all the way to the end of redemptive history. But the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant was to be the womb from which Christ would come. That's the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic gave Christ. But second, we're going to see that Christ gave the new covenant. And it's in the new covenant that we are saved in Jesus. So the Abrahamic covenant gave Christ, and Christ gave the the new covenant. So we're going to explore these uh, this morning. But first, let's consider the Abrahamic covenant that provided Christ. Galatians 3.8 tells us, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So just look at that text for a second. We have a strong statement here of the Bible's authority. The scripture foresaw something, almost like the Bible is a person. But it's not. It's the word written. And yet, because it is God's word, The scripture says of itself that the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. This is the very word of God. And if the Bible has such wisdom and authority, shouldn't we listen to it? Shouldn't we be hungry for it? May I ask you, are you hungry for the word of God? Not just on the Lord's day, but I mean, are you hungry to know what the truth is? Well, here it is. The Bible is omniscient because God reveals it then verse 8 tells us that where the Bible foresaw the future, it, it foresaw the future in terms of what would happen to the Gentiles. And it quotes Genesis 12, 3. So in order to understand this text, we need to go back and get the basis of it. So turn with me, if you will, back to Genesis 12, verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now this is the Abrahamic covenant, and there are three chapters in the Bible that deal with the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 15, and then chapter 17. So this is the first one. So Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That sounds pretty scary. God just called the patriarch Abraham out of everything he knew to go to a land where he would show him. And I will make you a great nation. Well, he's not a great nation. But here God is telling him that he will be made one, very hard to believe, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then look, here's the verse that's quoted in Galatians. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What? Abraham, according to Joshua, was a worshiper of the sun and the stars and was a pagan along with all the rest of his pagan relatives, and God invaded his life and said, go to the land that I will show you. Trust me, and I'm going to do this in you. And he says, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. So in what way will all... The families of the earth be blessed in Abraham. Think about that. How's that? What does that mean? In you. Do we have to become somehow part of the Abrahamic covenant? How, how are we going to be blessed in Abraham? Well, Genesis twenty two eighteen tells us. So we're in 12 now. I'm going to read you a verse out of chapter 22, verse 18. You can turn there if you want or just listen but it gives us more insight as to how it is in Abraham that all the nations will be blessed. Genesis twenty-two eighteen 18 says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And there's a sense in which all of Abraham's offspring were in him. And when he had first Isaac, and then Jacob, and then It continued, the line continued, they had their children, and the whole line of promise continued until the promised seed came, who is Jesus. And isn't it the case that it's in Jesus that all the nations of the earth are actually blessed? And so that's the promise that's being made here. And notice that from the beginning, this Abrahamic covenant had an international goal. That's really important to Galatians to the book we're studying. Because what did the Judaizers believe? They said, we're the true children of Abraham. We are the nation of the Jews and God has blessed us and we're the people of the circumcision. We observe the food laws. We keep the Jewish Sabbath. We observe what we're supposed to in terms of the feasts and the festivals. But What Paul's doing here is he's saying, you forgot the Bible you claim to believe. Genesis 12 never, ever created a nation for its own sake. This is a rebuke to the later Jews who developed this arrogant, exclusivistic mindset. It's totally wrong. The Abrahamic promise was made so that the offspring would be a blessing to the nations. Do you see how this promise is is the foundation of international missions? That's where this ends in the new covenant. When Christ comes from the Abrahamic covenant and establishes the new covenant, what is the mission of the new covenant? It's to preach the gospel to every tribe and tongue. That's why it's so important that as a church, we keep our eyes on the true mission. What is the mission? Well, it's threefold. We worship God. So that's the most important, the end of all that we do is to worship God. But we edify each other, but then the mission outwardly and to the world is to preach the gospel and to every tribe and tongue here at home and then uh, further abroad and then finally internationally. And it goes all the way back here to the Abrahamic covenant from whom Christ came. But let's keep reading. Genesis 12 verse 4. It says, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's old. Just think about that. God came to him, told him to leave everything he knew as an old man. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So it's just... Band of people traveling to Canaan, a land they don't know. And then it says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So this was like, God's giving them this land that's full of people who later we know there's giant. I mean, there were giants and stuff, you know? I mean, this was not a place that was hospitable to being, you know, settled they had their own kingdoms and God took them there and there were Canaanites in the land and then verse 7 and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring I will give this land that means his physical offspring for sure you know and the nation of Israel but ultimately it's Christ who not only rules this land but the whole earth and so there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him and so notice that God promises to give Abraham the land of Canaan. Now, here's, this is important. This Abrahamic promise is the beginning of the promise of a kingdom. Do you see? So he, he, he chooses Abraham, and he says, to your heir. He speaks of his heir, and he speaks of his people, and he speaks of a land, a realm. What is that? That's a kingdom, a king, a people, and a realm. So the Abrahamic promise, the covenant of circumcision, is first, which we're going to see in a minute, is is the beginning of God's institution of the nation of Israel, from whom the Christ would come. So let's see how the Abrahamic covenant further develops in Genesis 15. Now remember, there's three chapters that deal with the Abrahamic covenant. This is so important to biblical history, okay? So... To know your Bible, you need to know this. This is everything in the, in the New Testament is based on these foundational chapters in Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. All three are about the Abrahamic promise. When we come to Genesis 15, what we see is that God confirms and ratifies the promise that he made. So first he makes a promise... In Genesis 12, and then in Genesis 15, he swears an oath. That's the main difference. A promise isn't yet fully a covenant. He made the promise in Genesis 12, and then when he swore the oath, that's when it's ratified as a covenant in Genesis 15. So look with me at Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So just let that hit you. Abram is having a vision. And in his vision, he hears the word of the Lord. And here's what the Lord says. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Just as as an important reminder here, this is a strong reason we have not to fear, isn't it? God tells Abram, I am your shield. What sort of shield is this? He's an all powerful shield, an immovable shield, a shield who can protect you and will protect you from all of your true enemies. That's who he is. He says, I am your shield. You have nothing to fear. You don't have to fear. You have anxiety. We have to go through anxiety, through fear. And Abraham had many reasons to fear. He had no heir. He was in this strange land. Where was God? And God said, look, I know it looks scary. Maybe your life looks scary. He says, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. How great of a reward does an infinite God give? What does it mean when God writes down in his word, your reward shall be very great? Well, actually, according to the promise of this covenant, what's the reward? It's God. In the end, it's going to be Jesus, who is God. This is your reward, an infinite reward, God himself. And then verse two, but Abram said, he hears these promises and he doubts like, like, We do when we hear the word. No believer believes perfectly. I sure don't. I hear the word and I think, yeah, I hear that. Part of me believes and then I doubt. And that's what Abram did. He said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue in childless. I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So I I have no physical offspring or heir. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. So God, it doesn't look like you're keeping your promise. You ever feel that way? That's how Abraham felt. Where's the child? But verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So he's old. Remember, he was 75 when this started. So old man, his wife is old. They can't have children, but God says, your very own son shall be your heir. It's impossible. Any of his promises seem impossible to you? He's going to redeem you, give you life, give himself to you, govern your life for your good through the valley. He tells it to you. He's going to give you an heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. That's a great exercise. Why don't you go do that one night? Seriously, try it. Lay down somewhere out in the country, on the grass, or on the roof of your house if you can get up there, and start counting on a very dark night. Just try. Number the stars if you can, he says. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He's going to have a nation. This is not the promise just to a a tribe. The Abrahamic covenant is not actually, we're going to see, fundamentally different from the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant of circumcision to produce a nation from whom the Christ will come. That's the reason that the covenant was given in the first place. And then verse six, and he believed the Lord. He believed not perfectly, as we would see if we kept reading, believed imperfectly, but he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That was last Sunday's sermon. He was believing That the promised offspring would come and the Lord counted faith not his works but his faith as righteousness contrary again to the Judaizers who said no you want to be covenantally righteous you've got to keep the Jewish law but no here it's by faith only verse 7 and he said to him I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess but he said "O Lord God how am I to know that I shall possess it So how do I know this, Lord? Then God condescends. Look what God does. Yahweh, the one true Elohim. He said, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old. So as a a cow, a goat, and and then a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So imagine three beasts and then birds. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Now, this is really disgusting. It's supposed to be. It's brutal. You won't get the picture if you don't understand how absolutely brutal this is. He cuts these beasts, land beasts, right in half, and he sets them over against each other so there's a pathway to go between them. This is an ancient covenant rite which says... As I've cut these, bisected these animals, and, I, and if I, anyone who goes through them making an oath is saying, let me be like those dead animals if I don't keep my oath. So it's a maledictory oath, self-condemnation oath. But let's see what happens. He didn't cut the birds in half, but then verse 11, when the birds came, of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So Abram is inactive. That's the point. Where is Abram? He's basically in a trance. He's not doing anything. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is a prophecy of Egyptian captivity. And then, verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. (coughs) Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then, verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, At night, if someone's carrying a torch and a fire pot, what's it going to look like? That's all you're going to see is the torch and the fire pot. Yahweh was carrying them through the pieces himself. And we know that because verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. These are city dwellers and different tribes of this region. And God says, it's all yours. And how did he make the promise, the oath? He said, if I don't do this, let me die. Abram was sleeping. This isn't Abram's promise. This is God's promise. Just consider how great our truth-telling God is to make such oaths. You can believe his word. You know he didn't have to do this. God did not have to make an oath to his promise. Isn't his word enough? Didn't what, isn't what he said in Genesis 12 enough enough? wasn't it? I mean, if God says something, how many times does he need to repeat it for it to be true? He doesn't. He is the truth-telling God. God is, in his own being, truth. He cannot lie, the Bible says, but to condescend in love, to assure the anxious soul of Abram and yours and mine, he says, okay, let me die if I don't keep my word. I swear to you, I'll keep it. That's what he does. This is exactly what Hebrews 6, verses 17 to 20 is talking about. You can turn there if you'd like, or just listen. But it says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that is Abram and all the heirs of Abram, the unchangeable character of his purpose guaranteed it with an oath. So, his promise is unchangeable. His purpose is unchangeable, but he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What's the hope set before you and me? Jesus, life eternal, dwelling with him in his kingdom, under his rule, his perfect and full salvation. It's not far, guys. It's just a few more Sabbaths and we're gone. All flesh is grass. What are we doing? We can believe the oath. It's easier said than done, but he swears an oath to convince you, to persuade you. And then it says, verse, the next verse, Hebrews 6, verse 19, we have this oath as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So it's like Jesus died and took the anchor of our souls up into heaven with a rope still attached to us, so that when we die, our souls will be pulled into glory. That's the picture. Because of his oath, not your works, not mine, not how strong our faith is, His oath. Will you believe his oath? In the gospel, it's not animals that are bisected. In the new covenant, Jesus himself is bisected. He pronounced the maledictory oath upon himself so you don't have to die because you broke the covenant. And then he rose from the dead and gives you life eternal. That's Genesis 15, God's oath that you, Abram, I'm going to make you a kingdom and I'm going to give you an offspring. Then Genesis 17 expands the Abrahamic covenant even further. And he does it in two ways. So what have we seen so far? In Genesis 15, we have a promise. 12, sorry. In Genesis 12, it's just a naked promise. In Genesis 15, God adds an oath to the promise. In Genesis 17, he expands the covenant even more. It's the same covenant. But he does it in two ways. One, he says that kings will come from Abram, showing that the Abrahamic covenant is about the kingdom of Israel. Genesis 17, 6, you can see it. It says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings, plural, shall come from you. And the second thing, second way Genesis 17 expands the covenant is that God demands loyal obedience from his covenant people and threatens them with a curse. Now, this is important. Because it shows that the Abrahamic covenant is a kind of conditional covenant of works. That is, you have to obey the terms of this covenant or you'll be removed from the covenant itself. From all of its blessings, from membership in it. You have to work to maintain life in this covenant. It's important to remember in Galatians, okay? We're still aiming toward where we're going in Galatians, we need to get this right. The covenant of circumcision in Abraham first was a covenant of works. And look at Genesis 17.10. God demands obedience when he says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So there's a command, loyalty. What is circumcision? A badge of loyalty. I'm Yahweh's, he is mine a pledge Then genesis 17 verse 14 declares the punishment look at it that falls on those who don't obey any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be note cut off from his people he has broken my covenant now that cut off from his people in a land like canaan or anywhere what does that mean That means you are outcast from your tribe. What do you think is going to happen to you? The people who provided you food that you worked with for life and sustenance, you're out. You're out among the wild animals. You're out without the support system that you need for life. And in this time, you needed that tight support system. And you're out probably either to be enslaved, but more likely robbed and killed. This is death. To be cut off from the people is a death sentence. So this is a conditional covenant of works. Now, some people look at Genesis 15, and maybe you're thinking this. and Genesis 17, they're like, well, these are two different covenants. How can they be the same? Because you have one that's, there's an oath that's sworn on God's own promise. And the other covenant, they think another covenant, Genesis 17, is conditional based on works. Genesis 15 seems unbreakable. Genesis 17 clearly is breakable. So how does this fit together? Well, the promises to Abraham were guaranteed to the nation as a whole. But not every individual in the nation would participate in those promises. Genesis 15 is saying God will certainly establish the nation, plant the nation in the land of promise, give kings to the nation, bring forth the promised seed. In that sense, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. It will achieve its end. But Genesis 17 is saying that individuals in the nation could break the covenant and that membership is conditional and depends upon the individual's obedience. That is exactly the same as a Mosaic covenant. And the Davidic covenant. This is important to understand. So, when the New Testament speaks of the old, it doesn't. It's not singling out the Abrahamic covenant circumcision is different, as though the Mosaic covenant is a law works covenant, the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision isn't. No, it's all one old covenant. It's all the there's one covenant of circumcision beginning here with Abraham. Listen to a couple of texts that teach this that tie them all together. So we have Abraham, Moses, David; they're all one old covenant. Psalm Deuteronomy one eight is one place that shows it. So you can look that up on your own. But there's an even clearer place in Psalm one hundred and five, verses six to eleven, where it says, "O offspring of Abraham, his servant; children of Jacob, his chosen ones." So who are we talking to? The offspring of Abraham, the children of Jacob. Verse seven, Psalm one hundred and five. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is the Israelite covenant. It's All one covenant. It's the same as the Sinai covenant. And this Abrahamic covenant is the instrument through which God builds the Israelite kingdom. And the Israelite kingdom is that through which the Lord Jesus Christ himself came. So remember, the the Abrahamic covenant is not the saving covenant. It can't save you. It's a works covenant. That's important. That's actually getting to the point. Who saves you? Jesus The Abrahamic covenant provides Christ. Christ provides the new covenant and salvation through the promise. But the Abrahamic covenant not only preserves the line of promise to bring forth Christ, and so is tightly connected to the gospel, it's also a type or a shadow of the heavenly kingdom itself. And Abraham actually understood this Let me read to you Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. So we're considering, what is the Abrahamic covenant's nature? We're saying, well, it's a works covenant. What's its purpose? Its purpose was to preserve the line of promise so that Christ would come. Its purpose is also to be a shadow or a type of the redemptive kingdom of Jesus. This is Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. It speaks of Abraham. It says, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, which is what we just read about. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Not what we just heard. But then it says, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even in the Old Testament, Abraham was not thinking, my kingdom this ki- is, is in this world. Abraham even then understood the shadow, the type. It was about an eternal kingdom. Hebrews eleven sixteen confirms it and says, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the first thing we've seen is that the Abrahamic covenant provides Christ and is itself a type of Christ, but it's not a saving covenant. It's actually a covenant covenant. Of works, the covenant of circumcision is. But second, let's go back to Galatians three. So we've been doing this is all background to understand what's going on. Galatians three eight teaches us that Christ provides the new covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant provides Christ, and Christ provides the new covenant. So Galatians three verse eight. And it says, And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Well, in what covenant does that happen? It's a new covenant. This is a prophecy of the coming of Christ and the establishment of the new covenant. Now, we could turn to several passages To look at the new covenant so we're going to hold here I know we're doing lots of going different places in the bible but hold here in Galatians 3 8 put your finger right there and let's go to Hebrews 9 let's see if you can understand this so we're shifting gears we were looking at the Abrahamic covenant that provides Christ now we're looking at how Christ provides the new covenant and what it does so we're changing to the new covenant now Hebrews 9.15 explains the relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant. Look at what it says. It says, He is the mediator of a new covenant. What's a mediator? It's a go-between, it's someone who makes right, who helps to re- who who reconciles you in an estranged party. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised covenant eternal inheritance. Who's called? Well, everyone who believes was called. That is of all time. All the called are the believers of all time. And this is what it says. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death, Christ's death, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's really important to see. That the blood of Jesus in the new covenant is what saved anybody, even in the old. So how was Abraham saved? By virtue of the covenant of circumcision? No. How was Abraham saved? He believed Jesus. The promised child to come who would provide the new covenant is by Christ's blood in the new covenant that Abraham was saved. And Isaac and Jacob and and David and anybody was only saved by the blood of Jesus. That's what this verse is saying. That's what Galatians 3.9 says, isn't it? So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who's, who is blessed? Only those of faith along with Abraham, the man of faith. So let's remember what blessings are given in the new covenant. Turn with me to Hebrews 8, verses 10 to 12. So if the new covenant is the fullest historical revelation, of the saving promise of God, what are its promises? Th- these are promises to us, beloved. And ask yourself, as we read this, is this a covenant of works? Let's read these words together. Is this a works covenant, or is it a grace covenant? Okay? Hebrews ten eight verses 10 to 12, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. There's no conditions here. You see that? Not, not one condition. Look at what it says. I will make. God says, I will put. I will be their God. They shall all know me. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. This is an unconditional covenant of grace, free and absolute in mercy and redemptive love. And here in the covenant of grace, God writes his law on our hearts. He communes with his people because we all know him. He forgives all of our sins and justification. All these are gifts of grace. There's no thing of you in this text except that you're the recipient of all these graces. That's the character of the covenant of grace. What we could do is go back and trace the, the promise of this covenant breaking back into history all the way through the Bible, people being saved by it before it was established yet in the new covenant. You see? So listen to this. uh, It was first inaugurated in Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Jesus is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And then in Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel, how was Abel saved? Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So Abraham, or sorry, Abel was righteous by faith, not by works. This is the promise of the new covenant. Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. You know what Seth means? Does anyone know? Elect. Appointed. Chosen of God. This is the godly line. She called his name Seth, for God appointed for, uh, has appointed for man another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. And then here's, here's what happened in this line of believers. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They worshiped. And then Genesis five twenty four, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch, everyone's dying in Genesis 5, and then Enoch all of a sudden doesn't die. He Instead, he walks with the Lord, and God takes him straight to him. That's the promise of grace. In Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So first Noah finds favor, then Noah walks with God. Noah is shown the grace of God, then Noah is faithful to the Lord. So what we're doing, don't get lost in all the details here, individuals are being saved in the Old Testament by grace alone. That's what's happening, and it's the promise of Christ to come that saves them, this covenant of grace that is saving all of them. And Here's another really important thing to note to understand Galatians as we go forward. Many people in the Old Testament were saved without being a part of any covenant of circumcision. They weren't in the Abrahamic covenant. They weren't in the Mosaic covenant. Many were saved just as pagans that came to Christ. Like like, just like Abraham did before he was circumcised. He was called out of pagan worship. God just invaded him, his life, and saved him by grace. So listen to some of these other examples. This is Galatians 3.9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, listen to those who are of faith. Melchizedek worships the one true God, the king of righteousness in Jerusalem. Jethro. Remember? Moses flees to uh, Midian, meets Jethro. A Midianite father-in-law of Moses trusts in the one true God. Caleb. Numbers 32, great hero of Judah was a Kenizzite from one of the Canaanite tribes. Rahab, Joshua 2, a Canaanite prostitute who was converted to worship the Lord. Ruth, the Moabite. One of the major themes of Ruth is that she was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. The queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10. She trusted and worshipped the Israelite God. The widow of Zarephath. 1 Kings 17, the poor widow who was supplied with food by Elijah trusted the Lord but was not an Israelite. Naaman, 2 Kings 5, the Aramean commander who came to Elisha for healing trusted the Lord but was not in the covenant of circumcision. Job, we don't know what nationality Job was, but he wasn't an Israelite. He came from Edom, a man of great faith, not circumcised or in any covenant like that. The sailors in Jonah, Jonah 1:16, the sailors who threw Jonah into the sea feared, even though they weren't Israelites. The people of Nineveh, an entire city, nation of people, a whole city converted, never entered the covenant of circumcision. So what's the saving covenant in the Bible? That's what we're driving at. And this is what this is Paul's argument that cuts the knees out from under the Judaizers, who say, Oh. You want to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus? You need circumcision and Sabbath and food laws and all Jewish Sabbath and food laws and so forth. And Paul says, no, it's never been like that. From the beginning, it's been salvation is by grace through faith because of Jesus. That is the argument of the book of Galatians. What amazing grace. May I ask you, Are you of faith in Christ? This is Galatians 3, 7 to 9. I'm asking you the question of the text. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Are you of faith in Christ? It's the only way of grace. The only way to live eternally. To be someone of faith in Christ, first you have to understand you can't survive on a covenant of works. You're, you're not good enough. Neither am I. That you're a sinner. That if God holds forth his law covenant and puts it right here in front of you and says, can you do that? Are you, are you willing to say, absolutely not. I am not inherently good. That's Romans 3. There is none good. No, not one. There's none righteous, not even one. Or sometimes we think we're too good, which is itself evil. We think too well of ourselves, which is pride, self-trust. Are you guilty? And has the Holy Spirit convicted you that you don't trust and love God like you should? That's the law. You must trust and love God. It wouldn't isn't it good to do that? You can't though, like you should. Neither can I. Are you guilty of self-righteousness, rebellion, and self-will against the one true God? Well, only if you confess it, there's good news for you. There's only good news for those who recognize their need. Because he didn't come for the righteous. If I think I'm righteous, if you think you're righteous, there's no good news. But there's very good news if you deeply understand how you are not righteous. And for you, the good news is this, Jesus freely and absolutely forgives through his blood on the cross plus nothing. His perfect righteousness alone is yours. That's the message of the book of Galatians. Your sins and mine mean we deserve to die forever. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus died as a substitute for sinners who trust in him because they know they're sinners. Will you believe in Jesus and trusting him to save you, to forgive you, to reconcile you to the one true God? You will inherit eternal life and he will teach you and you must learn from him how to grow. You have to get better for health, not for righteousness, but for well-being and peace, not to achieve anything before God not to make yourself good, but you have to start getting better by grace under Christ, learning more and more to be conformed to him and keeping his law in your sanctification, not in your justification. But if you trust in him, you will inherit eternal life and you will dwell with him forever along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this great gospel, this promise of life that runs through the whole Bible. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to keep our eyes set upon Jesus, the one true God who swears oaths and does not change, who is our mighty and unchanging and perfect shield, the one who dwells in us by his spirit and seals us for eternity. Lord, help us to trust Christ and not ourselves, to live by grace and not according to our own works, hoping for eternity because of Jesus and all that he's done. In his name, amen.